We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Taipei-based freelance journalist Chris Horton, who can often be read in the New York Times. Great to be here, Gavin. Thanks for having me. And on the phone by Cadigalan Media's Jie Ting Ye. Good to be back. Now, tonight we discuss a Taiwan Travel Act, toilet paper supplies and price woes, calls for a referendum on Taiwan independence, Taiwan's freight rail network. Ah, they threw that one in there. You didn't guess we were going to talk about freight trains anywhere we are. And finally, we're going to finish with a piece about potato chips being named after a Ming Dynasty loyalist. But we'll begin with memorial services and events being held island-wide this Wednesday in remembrance of the 71st anniversary of the 228 incident. President Tsai Ing-wen pledged to find those responsible for the incident and also called for reconciliation at an event which took place at the 228 Peace Park in Taipei. And she also promised increased efforts to make more information about the massacre public and also to publish a national report about it. This year's 228 Memorial Day was the first, though, since lawmakers passed the Act on Promoting Transitional Justice in December of last year. And that, of course, came up. Meanwhile, former President Ma Ying-jeou also called for the government to continue to look into the incident in a bid to discover the truth behind the events of the day. However, he was quick to defend KMT and Chiang Kai-shek, saying that he was unaware of any evidence to support the belief that Chiang ordered the crack down himself. And of course he also said that the incident should not be used for political means. So Jieting, much the same there from both political parties really. Yeah, and you know, I think um, since this is the um, I guess you would say the third 2-2-A since um, the DPP was elected um, to, to be in power, right? And then, you know, transitional justice um, truth and reconciliation; those are big themes for the DPP. Um, they've come in promising those things, and you know I think this is getting to the point where people are starting to, you know, they want to see some results. They want to see some changes, you know. And I think um, the DPP really, you know, is running out of time and running out of excuses um, for the people that want to see these things um, move forward at a faster rate. Because obviously the DPP have said this week that they want the KMT to release more documentation from its archives. Um, yeah, and I think that's you know the right thing to do. And you know I think within the KMT, it's you know kind of up to them to see whether or not they want to you know sort of go down this path of re-examining their own past and coming to terms with it, or they're going to sort of dig in their heels and say, you know what, we're going to stick with our version of history. And you know, like as as Mind Joe is, you know, sort of apparently doing, and um, you know, and see how the voters sort of react to that. Of course, Chris Jetting there mentioned transitional justice a bit in its relationship to two to eight. Yeah, well, it, it there has been some movement on transitional justice, but it seems to be uh, primarily focused on the uh, ill-gotten assets uh, that the KMT seized uh, when they when they arrived in the forties. There, there does seem to be a thirst uh, both amongst younger and older Taiwanese for, uh, for something, especially with regard to uh, Chiang Kai-shek's legacy. As, as you probably saw, there were uh, young protesters out in uh, Taoyuan that went to uh, Chiang's mausoleum and splashed red paint all over, all over his, uh, his tomb. There seems to be 
yeah, I, I agree with Ting. Um, kind of now, it's this year is kind of now or now or never probably for uh, the DPP's uh, transitional justice drive under under Tsai Ing-wen. I'm curious to see how this uh, plays out with regard to uh, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall and. Uh, Will Chang be sitting there at the end of this year? I think he will stay there, but it goes back to an interesting point. I mean, Jia Ting, do you think the DPP has a time limit on this before the public has had enough of the government saying that it's going to act on the 228 incident but not actually doing anything? That's a little bit of a harder question. I mean, I think people are um, demanding to see more results, as I said, but what is the alternative, right? Um, you know, are they... Is the new power party, you know, big and strong enough to be able to take on something like this? Are people going to overwhelmingly vote them in power? I, I mean, I, as much as this is a very fundamental sort of existential question for the Taiwanese society, um, you know, when it comes to elections, I think people, first and foremost, are worried about their wallet, right? And, you know, they're worried about their paychecks, right? And I don't think there is such a thing as a time limit, per se, but I think... Um, public perceptions and public expectations will will shift, right? And then you'll begin to see more a preference for something that's a little bit more radical and something that's a little bit more, um, you know, fundamental um, than, you know, sort of incremental, right? And so I think, um, you know, I, I, I do believe the DPP sort of knows this as well. Um, you know, I don't blame them for, you know, putting their focus, you know, if, if that's, what they're thinking is putting their focus on the economy. Um, but, you know, this is, this is something that people do expect them to carry out, and it is something that, you know, is sort of the... It, it, it's in the DNA of the DPP. It's why they were formed in the first place. Well, and, of course, so, Chris also mentioned the, the group. They, they called themselves From Ethos to Nations, where they splashed red paint on the sarcophagus and a photo of Chiang Kai-shek at his mausoleum in Taoyuan. Obviously, they said they were young people, and their argument was they, they're young, they're, they're young pro-Taiwan independence people who believe that true transitional justice cannot happen as long as national resources continue to be dedicated to memorialising Chiang Kai-shek. So, Jieting, do you, do you think more young people People are now picking up on the 228 and realizing that it's part of their history? I, I do think so. And I think on top of finding out such a sort of horrific part of history, and you know, from my own personal experience, on top of that, there's the insult to injury of, well, nobody told us about it, right? So obviously people made a lot of effort to hide this from us, right? To make sure we didn't know about this. So there's the anger of one just, you know, how much violence and how much um, death and, you know, how, well, what a sort of tragic event that was. But there's also the layer of, well, then, like, you guys try to hide it from us. So, you know, I think that the young people, you know, there's, there's this, um, you know, sort of very quick upward trend for the young people to rediscover some, like, their, their history, their roots, to go back into the past to sort of re-examine and sort of question everything, right? And so I think um, this uh, this is like definitely a an outpouring of okay, you know, like the 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 show of the, the anger of one that this event happened, and two, you didn't want us to know about it, right? And so I think um, you know this is. You, you'll you'll see you know I think this is coming out in all sorts of different ways, right? Within the young. Um, the sort of younger generation, right? Whether it's, you know, sort of these big 
you know, pun intended, splashy protests like this, or you know, in literature, in arts, in music, or you know, just you know, online forums, right? And so I think, um, you know, this is that's definitely something that people are picking up on. Right, of course, Chris, President Mao Zedong, in between defense, saying that there was no evidence yet that Chiang Kai-shek ordered the crackdown, he also said that the incident should not be used for political means. I mean, is that at all possible? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I don't see. I don't see how that's possible. But maybe there's a way. You know, um, I've been reading a lot about the Republican period uh, when when Chang was still on the mainland, or, or still in China, and uh, before he came over to Taiwan. And you know, the executions were were not uncommon uh, in China when when Chang was there. And while he may not have uh, directly ordered uh, or explicitly ordered. What happened uh, in the aftermath of the the two two eight uprising? Um, I I think he probably had a, a pretty good idea of of how things were going to go down. At least in the sense that there was going to be there was going to be violence. Uh, there was you know you, you send troops over to, to uh, quell a rebellion. You know what uh, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? And uh, I, I think it's uh, it would be I think the onus is on the the Guomindang, uh to uh, to produce evidence that uh, that he was against the use of uh, you know lethal violence to uh, to suppress what had uh, more or less I think by the time the the soldiers arrived uh, Taiwanese had uh, had um, brought everything under control there was a there was a period of negotiation uh, which ended up uh, from the KMT perspective being a, a stalling tactic <laughs> there needs to be some sort of proof given that uh, that he he specifically requested uh, you know peaceful resolution of the, of the issue, and I, I just I, I haven't seen that forthcoming. Jetting, do you think this two to eight incident could ever not be political? I don't think if it happens, I doubt it'll be within you know our lifetime. Um, you know, one could imagine you know, very far into the future where you know it's just another holiday about something way in the past you know we understand the lessons we learned them and you know that's not you know there but i i think i think the problem is you know to even to get there you do need to go through these you know painful processes of re-examining everything in the past right um you know i think the the criticism that people you know lob against the kmt you know people who say you know what like let's Let's just get along. We all live here now. We all live together. You know, yes, like bad things happened in the past, but you know, let's just like move on, right? And then the response to that is, well, you can't expect us to move on if you don't even tell us what happened. We don't admit that you know you did something wrong, right? And so I think we're still, you know, it, it is still highly politicized, um, and I think until one the the you know people in the society comes to some sort of a very broad consensus about what has happened and two people you know get God has a sense that the perpetrators um, received justice and retribution and and three um, you know when this uh, the national identity question is settled right um, because the 228 you know, the troops of the KMT is so you know synonymous with the ROC regime right and so you know, I, I think before any of those things happen, um, you know, it's going to be something that is going to be controversial. And, you know, it, it, it is it is a very, threat, you know, sort of watershed moment in Taiwan's history. So. 
Right, we'll move on to another watershed moment in Taiwan's history, that being one that happened this week when the US Senate unanimously passed the Taiwan Travel Act. Now the bill promotes visits by government officials between Taiwan and the United States and now goes under the review of President Donald Trump and needs only his signature to officially become law. Under the Act, officials at all levels of the US government will be allowed to travel to Taiwan, while high-level Taiwanese officials will be able to enter the US under what are being called respectful conditions and meet with U.S. government leaders there. Now, Mike Gore of the Formosan Association for Public Affairs has been quoted as saying that the bill has eliminated barriers for Taiwan's high-level officials, including President Tsai Ing-wen to visit Washington, D.C. Some might argue that's a bit of an overstatement, but some lawmakers here in Taiwan are warning that the U.S. Senate's passing of the Travel Act will likely not result in a sudden increase in official exchanges and could even escalate cross-strait tensions with DPP lawmaker Tsai Shi-ying this week saying that it's not likely to be something that will take place overnight and high-level US officials won't come knocking as soon as the act is signed by Trump. While KMT lawmaker Zhang Chi-chen says that Beijing is likely to respond to the act and will likely continue to limit Taiwan's international participation in order to keep the US in check. He also warned that the Taiwan Travel Act could simply serve as another card in Washington's negotiation strategy with China. So, Chris, good and bad there? Well, it's really hard to say. Uh, I mean, first of all, will will Trump sign it? You know, and this is going to be a moment where I think you see at least for in the near term what his attitude towards Beijing and his attitude towards Taiwan is. Uh, Peter Navarro is uh, ascendant right now. Um, There's other people that are very pro-Taiwan in the administration, including uh, Randy Schreiber. So there is a a good chance that he will sign it. And I think the uh, the. The honeymoon uh, period with uh, with Beijing uh, is is probably or with Xi Jinping is is probably uh, coming to an end for for Trump. So he likes to uh, come across as his own man, and uh, I don't see him caving to uh, Xi or Beijing's demands uh, that that he reject this uh, this law. That said, um, you know uh, I believe Liu He, uh, who's who's uh, Kind of in charge of economic affairs for uh, for Xi Jinping, he's in Washington this week, and you know who knows what people are talking about behind closed doors. But uh, I think if it does get passed, if if Trump does sign the bill, then you're going to have an an interesting situation. I don't see signing one going over to Washington to the White House the next day. But I, I also think uh, it could be a check on Beijing's actions. Uh, you know, this is this is a self imposed travel ban uh, that the U.S you know it, it imposed it on itself with really no need you know out of uh fear of hurting beijing's feelings and you know beijing doesn't worry about hurting other people's feelings so why should the us or or any other country i mean people every country needs to do what's in its best interests and uh and in its allies interests as well and i don't see why uh i mean for I think Beijing will think twice before being especially provocative towards Taiwan and the U.S. if this bill passes, because that 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 opens the door for high level high level U.S. visits to Taiwan or Taiwan visits to the U.S. Right, Jetting, do you see President Tsai Ing-wen hopping on an airplane and go flying off to D.C. moments after it's been signed? No, I, I don't. Um, and as much as I, I so I do I am a big supporter of this this bill and you know I I want to see it become law and you know I do think 
um, you know, it is a watershed moment for Taiwan's history if it does um, become law when the, pre- when the president signs it. Um, however, um, just sort of a legislation, you know, the rules of legislation, right, it's much easier to prohibit something than to force somebody to do something actively, right? So in, in this case, um, it's, you know, the, the law, the text of the law says it should be the policy of the United States to um, you know, allow officials of the United States government to visit Taiwan and then vice versa. Um, but in the United States, um, the general precedent, you know, the general sort of constitutional practice is that the executive branch has, you know, very broad um, powers over foreign policy, right? And so, um, you know, as Chris mentioned, this travel ban is a self-imposed ban on uh, by the sort of the State Department and by the sort of foreign policy community, you know, to not quote unquote provoke China. Um, so you know, having having this law, um, you know, I don't think it's going to change their minds, you know, overnight. And you know, I, I you know, that said, I do think this law does um, create a very big um, send a very big signal, right? It is the it is the sense it is the will of the American people, so to speak, that we do want to see this happen. And so you know, State Department, you guys better you know respond in some way. Um, you know, I, I do think there's still going to be some period of back and forth, um, you know, to, to get people over at state, you know, people, people within, you know, sort of the, the think tank and the scholar community to come around to say, hey, you know, this is just either, you know, China's not really not going to, you know, have its feelings hurt, or, you know what, this is something that we should do in any case. So, um, you know, I think, I think it remains to be seen, but I am very happy that this law is moving you know right along right and then we'll leave it until mr donald trump actually signs it anyway taiwan's paper tissue needs made headlines both at home and abroad this week after reports of a run-on toilet paper ahead of a pending price hike in mid-march now the price hike is rumored to be between 10 and 30 percent now manufacturers have cited rising pulp prices the world over for the price hikes now taiwan's fair trade commission has taken steps to clean up the mess and launched an investigation into the panic buying that saw store shelves wiped clean of the stuff i couldn't get any more puns in there and i apologize now several of taiwan's toilet paper suppliers have said that pulp costs have increased by about 50 percent since the middle of last year now the fair trade commission has opened an investigation into these claims but it has been said by the council of agriculture that in fact pulp prices have declined over the past five years and that was a bit of a warning because the commission said that companies wholesale outlets or manufacturers will face fines of up to 50 million nt if they're found to have been manipulating the price of toilet paper so there we go chris toilet paper mate i'm not going to discuss any possible collusion because it hasn't been proven but uh the the two things that that are the big takeaways for me on this are um one, the the high price sensitivity um, of the Taiwanese market, of the Taiwanese consumer. Um, people, you know, for something as simple and as, you know, inexpensive as toilet paper, they'll stock up uh, just to save to, just to save a few bucks uh, going down the road because, sure, there's I think there's a tradition of frugality here, but also wages have stagnated. Um, it's it's uh, 
everybody's concerned about the economy here. And any chance you get to, uh, to save a little bit of money, I think people will take it. The second takeaway would be uh, just... Uh, <laughs> The, the the love of international media for uh, for quirky Taiwan stories and this is you know it, it wasn't tragic you know the, nobody was getting mauled at uh, you know or getting trampled at uh, PX Mart or, or Costco but uh, there's so much to Taiwan and uh, so many interesting stories and and you know quite often they end up being uh, toilet paper stories or legislative UN uh, scuffles you know the and uh, these these are stories. This is news, but uh, but I I I hope going forward uh, the coverage of Taiwan uh, in international media just you know scratches the surface. Doesn't go down the toilet. There we go. <laughs> anyway, jetting. I mean, this this did raise the question of price manipulation by wholesalers and manufacturers. You know, I I don't want to speculate you know on on this either. You know, and I you know obviously I think Taiwanese netizens love you know discussing cons- you know, conspiracy theories just like anybody else. Um, but I, I do want to say this does remind me of, um, you know, again, just how sensitive Taiwan is also to international trade, right? Because, um, <clears throat> I mean, we have to remember Taiwan is a rather hilly island that has a lot of people crammed into it, right? And all these people need toilet paper, right? And, you know, this, this stuff has to come from abroad and... You know, today it might be the price of pulp, right? Tomorrow it might be the price of oil, right? And so, you know, these things, I mean, obviously the toilet paper thing is, you know, quirky and and kind of funny, but, you know, the oil is not, (laughs) right? And so, you know, could you say that, you know, this this has some sort of strategic um, implications, you know, these people should kind of think about, you know, how does... Yeah, like, you know, these very simple things in life that we all take for granted, right? Like toilet paper, you know, the toilets being able to flush, right? Being able to fill up your car um, at the pump, right? You know, these things are what's going to hurt when um, there was something serious were to happen. Right, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Formosa Television Chairman Guo Bei Hong earlier this week launched a campaign to seek a referendum on Taiwan independence. Now he wants the referendum held on April the 6th of next year. And now the referendum idea has got words of encouragement from former President Li Dongwei and former President Chen Shui-bian. No real surprise there. But a referendum on Taiwan independence? Well, that's a bit of an issue because there are problems as questions related to constitutional issues, including sovereign still cannot be decided through referendums. Now, independence groups are calling on the DPP to amend the Referendum Act to allow for sovereignty issues to be put to a popular vote. However, the Act itself was only recently amended to lower the threshold for referendums to be called. So do you think the DPP is going to once again amend the Act? Well, uh, I I can't say for sure, but I I mean, given that uh, the, the most recent amendment was in December, I believe, it seems like that would be that would be moving pretty quickly. Also, um, you know, while while I think uh, the Thai administration and, and the DPP under Chairwoman Tsai has uh, has you know stood strong against uh, Beijing's insistence on uh, recognizing the so-called 92 consensus, 
Um, you know, I, I don't think they're actively seeking to provoke uh, to provoke China, and I think paving the way for such a referendum because I, if you ask people, I I don't know. I mean, it, what how, what would the outcome be? You know, and and what what are the benefits? If it's an unofficial, non-binding referendum, I I don't see any any harm in it. You know, it just kind of lets people know wh- which way the wind is blowing. But if you have something where it's actually, you know, there are legal ramifications and constitutional ramifications, then you're crossing red lines. And uh, and if Taiwan uh, wants to go there, um, then that's that's you know that's their choice. But uh, I'm not sure if. You know, anyone's looking to go there right now. People, I, I think, are still more concerned with uh, with their wallets, with with the with the economy, than they are with uh, self determination. Not to say that self determination is not important. I just don't think it's at the very top of the list for for the average person here right now. Jetting the referendum on independence, could it go anywhere? Could it go nowhere? And what's the world going to think about it? Is the is the world going to pay any attention to it? Um, I I think the world will pay attention to it. Um I, I do think again it, it sort of depends on the circumstances of the you know the actual like what what is the process of this referendum right um, you know and the, again also you know what is sort of the media narrative about it right and you know I think um, I mean we've seen these kinds of you know sort of similar you know international stories right so you know Scotland some time ago we've seen Catalonia in Spain. Um, you know other regions of uh, European countries, you know, like the Kur- uh, Kurdistan in Iraq. Um, you know everybody's doing these referendums um, because you know there is you know like a genuine uh, desire for some of these people to you know declare their sovereignty and they want to form their own state. Um, the problem in Taiwan, um, I think, is um, what I mean with the referendum law, like you. It is essentially a referendum to overthrow or to change the Republic of China regime, right? Um, you know, if it's if if you are saying you know we want to establish a new state, then what? Why does it matter that it has to be legal under the legal framework of the old state? Does that make sense? Um, but you know, if it's not a binding referendum, I mean, we we have those all the time. They're called polls, right? And so, you know, their polls are done on independent status quo unification, you know, every month or you know, every couple months. And because they're not binding, people are will say, you know, of course, yeah, like you, you know, they will say whatever. It, it's not. It doesn't have the same gravity, right? And people are not. The calculus is totally different when people are saying, well, you know, this is just to to express a preference versus, okay, this is actually going to matter, this is actually going to change things. Um, you know, I, I, do, I do think that um, the, the, this movement um, does, again, signal and put a lot of pressure and then push this, you know, push this issue forward. And I think, um, you know, in the meantime, it does raise a lot of public discourse, right? You know, for, like like we're talking about this now on the air. Um, it really does get people to think, okay, you know, like why should we have this referendum? Why? How should we do it? Um, is the point to legally change something? Is the point to 
show the international community, people outside of Taiwan, what the Taiwanese people really want, um, so they can respond to it. You know, I think these are all the you know sort of considerations that need to go into you know how this issue goes forward. With regard to uh, the, I mean, there are there are similarities to uh, Catalonia and and the Kurds and Scotland, but Taiwan already has its, its sovereignty as well. So. Um, and it, it has, you know, it, it has a bunch of missiles pointed at it. And uh, Xi Jinping is now, it looks like he's going to be unencumbered by term limits. And he's he's spoken about resolving uh, the, ta- the uh, you know, what, what Beijing calls the, uh, the Taiwan issue or the Taiwan question uh, within his... Uh, I think he's, uh, he's more or less an emperor and he wants to go down as... as a great emperor, and what what would uh, you know? What would facilitate that more, that legacy more than uh, than taking Taiwan for uh, for the People's Republic? And if, as I said, you know, t- Taiwan, the Taiwanese people have the right to uh, make their own decisions, uh, whatever those may be. But uh, Xi Jinping won't like it. Maybe he should read his Shakespeare. Something happened to a chap called Julius Caesar once upon a time. He was an emperor. Anyway, we'll leave that there and we'll move on to another issue, that being rail transportation. And then while we've covered passenger services before, a recent article published in the Taiwan Sentinel touched on the aspects of Taiwan's rail system vis-à-vis its freight. And I spoke with Daffid Fell of the Centre of Taiwan Studies at SOAS in London about the issue. Good evening, Daffid. Uh, good evening. Good to be on ICRT. Right, and of course, a recent article you wrote in the Taiwan Sentinel, been a long critic of railway planning policies here in Taiwan, arguing that the network suffers from underinvestment and poor planning, and also government priority has for the 30 years previously been focused on road transport. And you say that this has led to the closure of numerous branch lines, leaving some towns without rail connections, and to where we are now, that being tackling increasing issues of air pollution. But in a more recent article, you opted to tackle the underreported issue of freight. Taiwan was once, of course, a vast freight rail network of an island, much of which was, of course, operated by the state-owned behemoth Taiwan Sugar. But it all began to unravel in the 1960s, and you say that Taiwan's railway is now fast becoming a passenger-only network. So what initially spurred the demise of the freight rail services system here in Taiwan? Well, I think a lot of the um, initial ideas was that it was really just uh, economic. But I uh, the more I looked into the topic, it seemed to me that there was also a political angle. So I started to try and dig into uh, into that that question, um, and that was how what, what really inspired me to write that uh, that article. Right, I thought it was quite interesting that the, the it began in the 1960s in your article with with the Taiwan Railways Administration and Thai Sugar sort of pushing and shoving each other out of the way to who could actually operate the freight working here. That was something that um, I only kind of noticed when I looked. Uh, a friend showed me some archives. So, and uh, it was essentially, it seemed that uh, Taiwan Railway Administration just didn't want any competition. Um, and I think one of the problems is, has been inefficiency uh, on uh, Taiwan Railway Administration. They've not really coped um, uh, well. And I think that's part of the, uh, of the story. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Also, you argue that politics reared its ugly head, and that was sort of began the complete demise of the island's freight rail services. Yes, I mean, uh, it seemed to me that, that um, 
democracy had both positive and negative effects when it comes to transport in, um, uh, in Taiwan. Um, in, when it comes to passenger network, uh, the overall trend seemed to be quite positive. Um, if we look at things like high-speed rail, uh, metro networks, there has been a pretty uh, significant um, improvement. I mean, I lived in Taiwan in the late 1980s, so I, could, I can really see that the, um, the way that, uh, for example, the Taipei Metro, Gaoshan Metro has really transformed uh, the city and definitely had a good environmental impact. But when it comes to freight, then uh, the situation looks quite different. Uh, and one of the things that struck me was that, say, in, in Europe, uh, freight on rail is quite closely linked with um, environmentalism. But it doesn't seem to have been the case in, in Taiwan. Um, uh, I, I mean, I've done a lot of work with environmentalists, but it's something that's just not come up in, uh, in the Taiwan case. So one of the examples of that is, of course, Kaohsiung, which, of course, once upon a time had this huge rail network that would be moving things to the huge harbours there for export. But now, of course, all that is now moved by convoys of trucks on a daily basis, which is both environmentally not nice and dangerous to pedestrians, motorists and residents of the areas alike. That's right. I mean, anyone has taken the, um, uh, gone on the, um, the superhighway uh, out of Kaohsiung heading north will realise just to what extent uh, this freight is moved uh, by road. And it can be quite scary. I mean, I can remember, I used to live in Gaoshung, and it, and it was quite scary taking the, um, the motorway on that, on that section. Um, but at least initially, quite a lot of that freight was moved um, by rail. But one of the things that struck me in my kind of 20 years of, of visiting Taiwan was how that's gradually declined. And basically, uh, the whole of that harbour network has been removed and now is either light rail or um, cycle tracks. Which is so, all, right, all right for the tourists, of course, and some of the residents who take the, the tram in Kaohsiung, but I mean, not for the environment. No, that's right. I, I mean, I think, that it, I think it, it could have been possible to, uh, to have both. Um, um, I don't think you need too much space for uh, cycle tracks. Um, but that just was off the agenda, which, uh, and I think a lot of it was down to politics. Um, I think we can see the way that uh, Taiwanese politi politicians have tried to kind of gain votes with, okay, um, uh, closing urban uh, railways, uh, moving railways um, on high platforms or under the ground. Um, it's, it's, it's been a, um, uh, quite an obvious trend over the last, uh, 15 uh, years, and that's also uh, limited the space for rail freight, because once you're, you're underground, you can't actually have any sidings anymore. Right, I mean, what, what politics got in the way of this? Was there one particular party, or the, all the political parties sort of made a mess of it, we'll say, for the I sake think of argument? it's been a, a, a cross-party uh, thing. So I think we can, we can see this, um, this process starting... Um, when the KNT was running, running Kaohsiung and it continued in, into the DUP. So I don't think it's a partisan uh, issue. I think it's just a one way of appealing, not only to voters, but I think it's also uh, a means of appealing to um, the construction state. Um, and uh, politicians get a lot of their funding from the construction industry. Uh, so one of the things that we've seen is uh, often... Uh, this kind of transport projects could have been done much more cheaply. Um, for example, in one of the essays I published with Taiwan Sentinel, uh, I talked about uh, links 
to uh, Taoyuan Airport. It could have been done very, very cheaply. Um, or even a, a, a very simple branch from the high-speed line could have been um, uh, done at quite limited cost, but they opted for a very, very expensive uh, uh, airport link, which became very controversial in, in itself. Right. I mean, do you think a lot of politicians look at rail freight and think it's old-fashioned? Um, I think that's uh, probably partly the um, uh, true. I think to a large extent, transport planning in Taiwan has been influenced by where Taiwan's transport planners were educated, which is in the U.S. Uh, so I think that really coloured Taiwan's transport policies until uh, things started to change mid-1990s. But I think we can see that, that U.S. focus on road transport uh, influence very, very clearly. Right, and you also argue in your Taiwan Sentinel piece that the island's freight rail network is now so far gone that it's become unfeasible to revive it for environmental purposes, which, of course, the government is looking to do. Its environment issues are big here at the moment. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a bit of... The, it's quite a, a, um, a tragedy there. I mean, if we take uh, the... Um, uh, I think the, just the degree that we've seen uh, railway tracks put on high platforms or underground... Um, we can we can see that that impact. Now, one of the people who who responded to to my free article uh, raised the issue of privatisation. In other words, bringing in competition to uh, Taiwan Railway um, Administration's freight services, and that that seems to be quite successful in a number of European uh, countries. Um, so, opening up uh, competition to the state provider in terms of rail freight. Uh, so that was one potential, slightly more positive uh, idea that, that came up. Um, but I'm not sure to what extent uh, that would get a, get a hearing in Taiwan. Because, of course, there, are, there probably are some areas where rail freight could uh, be competitive, for example, on the East Coast, uh, where it hasn't really gone underground or over the ground or, or on platforms to the same, same degree, and where the road network isn't quite so... Uh, so developed. So uh, there is some. Maybe I was too um, uh, pessimistic in that conclusion. Right. I mean, do you see any future though? In the long run, is there any future for Taiwan's freight rail network? Uh, I would say um, uh, now is the time for action, um, and I think you just need some some kind of concrete, systematic planning. Um, but I mean, some things that are lost are lost for good. Taiwan Sugar Railways, Taiwan. Um, uh, Gaoshan Harbour Railways, but I think there still is some, there is some scope if uh, some serious planning is conducted. And I, and I, I think it's a, a perhaps it's a good um, issue for Taiwanese politicians to, to um, um, particularly more environmental uh, parties to, to um, try and win some votes if they can kind of couch it in environmental terms. That was me in conversation with David Fell of the Centre of Taiwan Studies at SOAS in London. And before we go this week, the Tainan government has come up with a rather novel way to promote the city's historical sites, that being naming a variety of potato chips after Ming Dynasty loyalist Zheng Changgong, or Kershinga, as he's also known. Now, the snacks are named Changgong, which means success here, and there's a picture of the Ming loyalist on the package based on a portrait of him from a museum. Now, the chips are only available at six places in Tainan at their historical sites, but they're selling so well that the Taiwan 
Tainan, rather, Cultural Affairs Bureau has banned people from buying more than two packets per person. So potato chips, Chris, as a promotional tool. Now, could we see the island's political parties producing their own snacks to promote their candidates in the November elections? And who else do you think could be turned into a bag of chips? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I was just, I was, uh, I, I was, I was seeing parallels between uh, between the potato chips and uh, the toilet paper. I think um, Koshinga Jung Chun Gong, you know, he's he's not uh, he's not an apolitical figure. He is he he did come over from from China, so there's 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 that. But um, yeah, I mean, political snacks, uh, sure, why not? I, I do remember uh, for the the inauguration of. Uh, Tsai and Chun a couple years back, uh, the, uh, what was it? Jinman uh, Gaoliang Zhou. They they had a special inaugural uh, edition of, of the uh, of the fifty eight proof. Um, that, that, that was because some people wanted to forget. <laughs> and there was also the Taiwan the Taiwan beer. Uh, Taiwan beer had a special presidential or uh, inaugural edition. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's terribly. Uh, controversial and yeah it's it's a fun thing that taiwan likes to do so why not and jetting i mean is there anyone else you'd like to see turned into a bag of chips i think the uh the host and the regular guests at um icrt taiwan this week would make a very popular mascot for potato chips possibly some might disagree some of them might even get angry over that comment chips chips yeah, there we go. Political potato chips. And you get rhymes. It's perfect. Political potato chips. Anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Chris Horton. Thanks for having me again. And on the telephone by Kadagalan Media's Jie Ting Ye. Thanks. Have a good evening. And thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps for all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.